and welcome to another episode of Synergy Autism Podcast. Today I am sharing the journey of one of my lovely friends, Joyce Bernheim. She shares her journey of being a busy healthcare business attorney and then becoming a mom of two wonderful children, one of which has autism. Joyce is a very, very strong advocate for our better understanding of the social, emotional, aspects of autism from a neuroscience point of view. So the neuroscience behind the social emotional aspects that we see in autism. She basically should have another doctorate in neuroscience. I look to her regularly for information on neuroscience and she always has a new wonderful book for me to read and digest. Often they are very heavy (laughs) and wonderful books about um, neuroscience and brain integration. So I am super proud to have her today on the podcast. So listen in. She'll describe herself a little bit more and about her journey with her own son. Thank you so much for listening and enjoy. So welcome to the Synergy Autism Podcast. I'm very happy to have you here, Joyce. And I'm happy to be here. So this is Joyce Bernheim. She is a parent and an advocate, in my opinion, for the autism community. And um, I feel really lucky to have known your son for as long as I have known him. And I feel really excited to have you today to tell us a little bit about your journey with your own son. But then also you um, have really reached out into the autism community, and I'd love to hear more about that. Well, thank you. You've been a great help to uh, me and our family, so I'm very happy to be able to be here and um, help communicate the things that I've learned. Um, I came to autism uh, somewhat later in life than many people because uh, after having a number of misadventures in the reproductive arena, uh, I finally gave birth to our son Paul. Uh, at the age of uh, 42 Uh, and um, I was not intending to get pregnant but I was very happy um, Mm -hmm. that that I was Um, at the time I was a lawyer uh, practicing in the area of healthcare business law so I didn't do malpractice Mm -hmm. litigation but I did do a lot of work with a tremendous range of health care businesses mm-hmm. from large regional uh, health systems down to solo practitioners and uh, a third-party payers that is insurance companies public and private mm-hmm. and uh, before that which is also important to my journey is that I was originally going to be a professor of French So I spent a lot of time reading a lot of literature (laughs) and um, also a lot of history because when you do that, you're really looking at a culture over a long period of time. Yeah, sounds like you were very busy at the time that you got pregnant. (laughs) I was. I was extremely busy. Uh, I already had a daughter whom we had adopted. Mm -hmm. And... um, my career was uh, very intense, mm-hmm. also very, uh, uh, at the time I was in one of the first waves of women entering the profession, so very male dominated mm-hmm. um, and um, very logic and money oriented. Mm-hmm. 
very competitive and um, that um, left me I think singularly unprepared to deal with a social emotional um, hmm. condition like mm -hmm. autism okay but underneath the person who was a lawyer there was a person who had been studying literature and things that are very social and cultural and emotional and um, as I started wrestling with my son's autism I realized very quickly that I did not have um, much understanding of the brain hmm. so how how old was he when he was or let me ask it a different way how old was he when you knew that there was something going on that you wanted to find out more um, just uh, after he turned three Mm -hmm. on the recommendation of a friend who had a son uh, in special ed, mm -hmm. not autism, but um, we had him evaluated by the school district team. Mm -hmm. They came to our house and they did a you know, full morning evaluation with him. And then they came back about a week later and uh, the conversation went something like this. Your son uh, is in the first percentile on everything, mm -hmm. how would you like an autism evaluation? Mm -hmm. And my reaction to that was um, not, oh, I was just waiting for you to ask that. I'd love right. to have an autism evaluation. Right. And um, no, I was just very um, focused on why would we need that. Mm -hmm. Um, Why you'd need the additional autism eligibility? Yes. In what did it? Yes. What did it mean? Because mm -hmm. I had actually encountered the special ed laws very, very shallowly. Mm. Uh, I had done. Uh, I had a colleague at my office, a partner who did special ed law, mm -hmm. uh, and um, who we represented uh, a school district, and I had sort of bumped into some issues around that um, and I just didn't know why you would need the extra designation mm -hmm. why they couldn't just figure out what what does he need right and you know give him what he needs why does he need a different why label did, yes yeah. exactly okay. and I think the school staff um, thought that I was resistant because I just was too upset about the idea of our son having autism. And, you know, no parent wants to have that diagnosis. Right. So, but it, was, it wasn't really that. It was explained to me why we need to do this now. Mm -hmm. And then I'll be happy to do it. And yep. I didn't get any, anything. So am I hearing you right that you wanted to kind of get started with helping him rather than focusing in on, like, why is it important to find this additional label? Right. Yeah. Um, but then I went to, um, I went to, I got the evaluate, copy of the evaluation. I went to uh, our pediatrician mm -hmm. who basically said, oh, you know, just give him some more time. Hmm. And That's a familiar story. I also, but I also went to a developmental pediatrician I knew. Hmm. Not, I didn't bring my son in, mm -hmm. but I discussed it with her, and I never raised this with her subsequently because I'm quite sure 
as time went by, she would not give the same advice. Mm. But at the time, she said, well, why don't you wait, you know, six months or so mm-hmm. and see, see how it goes. Mm-hmm. And um, so that's what I did. We got him into special education classes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I uh, read a book about late-talking children. Mm-hmm. Uh, that indicated that not all late-talking children are, you know, have permanent issues. So mm-hmm. I felt comfortable with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was placed, he had a school placement that was above his capabilities. Mm-hmm. And I sat, I was sitting down talking to the teacher one day, and I said, well, what do you think it is? She said, I think your son has autism. Because mm-hmm. I had asked that question. Mm-hmm. Nobody said that before. Oh. And the minute somebody said, I think your son has autism, I went online mm-hmm. and ordered up a bunch of books uh, and started researching what autism was. And the minute I saw the diagnostic criteria, mm-hmm. I was pretty sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't quite sure how to interpret all those criteria, mm-hmm. but I strongly suspected that's exactly what he had. And then we immediately got in line to have an evaluation, and um, that diagnosis was given uh, almost a year after he was first evaluated. So I'm a little system. sorry to, to interrupt you for a second. I'm a little confused or about so when when they first came in and they wanted to do the autism evaluation, you said um, why. Right. Right. So they didn't go ahead with that. Is that what I'm hearing? That's correct. So, but he still qualified, so he was fine to go into. Yeah. Right. And then, so then, when the preschool teacher presumably said, "I think it's autism," what was the difference between those two? Was one because somebody had gotten to know him better and then was able to say it, or was it just time elapsed? Of, I, th- I think that the preschool staff in the previous placement uh-huh. thought that he had autism and they were reluctant to tell me oh, okay. or they were reluctant to voice candidly uh-huh. uh, what they really thought uh-huh. because I asked repeatedly in several meetings do you think he has autism uh-huh. and they kept saying oh, you know uh-huh. Uh, we can't really say until we do the evaluation, mm-hmm. but we all know that everyone involved with autism knows if you have any sophistication, you know pretty darn quickly, mm-hmm. and pretty, you have a gut feeling, mm-hmm. and I believe they had a gut feeling even though they hadn't done a full evaluation, and they really thought that I would f- we would freak out or that... Mm. You know they. Well, they are talking to two attorneys, right? So right. That they were. No, I mean, they were and, nervous and, about that. I think. And not just two attorneys, but people yeah. who were really pushing them. Hmm. You know, we were to explain just, themselves. And yes, to, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that we just had a very direct. You know, it's not like we couldn't handle the truth. It's that we had lots of questions. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it took a while, but once we, um, once he was diagnosed, 
uh, we basically got a label and a one-page handwritten sheet that said, here are some resources, go talk to your local school district. Hmm. And I was so appalled by that as, a, as an inside healthcare person. So that was from the medical community. So once yes. you got the, they were saying it at, at his preschool, you, you went for the medical I went for a medical evaluation. And, yeah, okay. And, they and then subsequently, we had a, a we had another evaluation within the school district. Mm-hmm. But at that point, right. I you know wanted the full on right. you know sophisticated right. and um so I was so appalled at the evaluation process that I did something I had never done either before or since, which was I wrote them a seven page single space letter telling them exactly. <laughs> how inadequate their process was for us as parents Mm -hmm. Um, but I felt like I had been turned loose with no direction I went to the web I went to the web and uh, I saw hundreds even then this was 1998 Mm -hmm. of websites none of which looked overly credible (laughs) Mm. Uh, I had no way of knowing which ones uh, were legitimate and which ones you didn't have any help navigating that system no but, and there were diagnosis didn't help you with that and I had neither the time nor the energy nor the emotional reserve sure to you know to start to sort that out when I was already the parent I was a partner in my law firm I had a very busy practice mm-hmm. and I had a son who'd just been diagnosed yeah. so I was emotionally yeah. not uh, at the top of my game either Mm-hmm. Um, so we made an appointment to see somebody in San Francisco mm-hmm. um, who was a world-renowned mm-hmm. autism consultant, uh, mm-hmm. autism um, expert. Mm-hmm. And um, we got some more help and direction from her. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we got involved in his care and through the school. Mm-hmm. And so you were really searching for what to do now. And at the time, there was almost nothing mm-hmm. other than discrete trial training. Mm-hmm. And I went to a conference where uh, put on by people who supported discrete trial training. Mm-hmm. And I just intuitively did not believe that that was the right thing for my son. Hmm. Uh, Is that what the person in San Francisco was saying? No. She recommended, she said that um, discrete trial training was a, you know, a very solid and good tool to use, but that it wasn't the whole Mm -hmm. issue. And she recounted an instance where she had been in, uh, in the company of one of the leaders of that movement, Tris Smith, who was doing a replication study. Of the Lovas mm-hmm. um, research, and she had accompanied him to the home of a young child who was getting discrete trial training. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't think he was doing the discrete trial training, but he was visiting on that occasion. Mm-hmm. And when the therapist met the child at the door, the child was really happy to see the therapist and um, you know really excited about that and the therapist responded in a very neutral way 
not to the emotional social overture, but then got the child into the room to do the discrete trial training. Mm -hmm. And the comment of the person I saw was, that's the issue with autism, and that person was not responding to the social emotional overtures of the child, mm -hmm. and that is exactly, if you look at the diagnostic criteria, that's what the diagnostic criteria are about. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that children with autism can't benefit a great deal from discrete trial training, but that doesn't hit the core issues. The true issues. core issues, yeah. That's right. And yeah. I thought that that was a very um, uh, acute and important observation because I had looked at the, the diagnostic criteria and mm -hmm. I could see very well that they were about the social-emotional interaction. Right. And so, um, nonetheless, when I returned home to Portland, um, I didn't see any services mm -hmm. that directly dealt with those issues. We did have my son do uh, speech therapy. Mm -hmm. It was straight-up traditional speech therapy for about a year. Um, it was discontinued by the therapist because she said it really was not affecting him. Mm. It was not making an improvement and the insurance mm -hmm. company would no longer pay for it if he wasn't wow. making progress. So he wasn't making progress? It wasn't that he was doing quite well verbally and that that person wasn't supporting the social end of things? or I think it was the wrong therapy. Mm. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that it was not directly focused on the issues because it fundamentally was not a speech issue for him. Mm -hmm. Clearly he did have speech issues but I don't think they arose purely out of the kinds of, it, let's put it this way, it really wasn't primarily the speech areas of his brain mm -hmm. that were the problem. Mm -hmm. And so doing traditional speech therapy as it was done then, mm -hmm. wasn't really reaching into the areas that needed uh -huh. um, support and remediation. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. But that was the closest thing you could find at the time, my guess, from what right. you had no social, from. No social yeah. skills groups, no, none of, none of the approaches that are currently available yeah. had, had been invented then. Mm -hmm. And people did not f fully grasp Mm -hmm. the nature of social-emotional interaction. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's true not just in the autism community, but I think that that's true for, like you were talking about the brain a few minutes ago, mm -hmm. of just in general how to approach social-emotional development. A absolutely, and that's getting a little bit ahead, but then I launched into learning about the brain, about which I knew nothing. I knew that somehow it, w it was affecting the brain. Uh-huh. So I we're still talking late 90s, right? Is that what Yes, this was very late 90s. And I want to say I had a conversation in maybe 2000 uh -huh. with a client of mine who was a neurologist. Oh, wow. And I was talking with him late one evening, and I said, Hey, Jeremy, is there a book that I could read about the brain that <sighs> I might be able to understand? because I'm not a doctor, you know, and I'm, I'm not a psychiatrist, I'm not, you know, 
very advanced in scientific understanding. And he mentioned to me, gave me the name of a book that was the book that he made him want to become hmm. a neurologist. And it was an introductory book on the brain. Do you, ha- do you remember the name of it? Or yeah, the- it was called oh. The Physiology of Behavior. Uh, by uh, his last name is Carlson, I think, mm. and uh, it was very heavy sledding for me. <laughs> I had remembered just enough chemistry, <laughs> uh, and I didn't trouble myself with trying to have a complete understanding because really, what I wanted was the big picture mm-hmm. concepts. Yeah. And it took me about a year to read it. Wow. Reading about 10 minutes a night before I absolutely passed out. Yeah. It's probably enough for it to think about, too, in small chunks. And um, when I read that, it was one of the most powerful things I had ever read because it explained to me things about how people work Mm -hmm. that. I wish I had known, like all my life. Mm. Not even autism related, just in general. Oh, not at all. Because what was happening in my practice was that I was interacting with very different clients. Mm. I had clients who were absolutely, astonishingly brilliant, logical, creative, and can I swear on this podcast? Sure. (laughs) All fucked up. I had a group of physicians who were incredibly successful financially, but inside their group it was World War III. Mm. They couldn't talk to each other. They were at war with one another. They couldn't process my advice. And I had another set of clients who were the and those were surgeons mm. and another set of clients who were uh, neonatologists mm. who are the kinds of doctors who take care of medically compromised newborns right. they not only were they lovely human beings but they had done something incredibly smart they had hired somebody to coach them on communication <laughs> And um, their leader was an incredibly forward-thinking guy. He had this person coach them at all of their board meetings. Oh, wow. And all of their meetings so they could learn how to talk to each other. This was directly connected to the kind of practice they had Uh because they worked in shifts. Critically ill babies need medical staff there. 24 hours a day which meant they had to hand off babies Mm -hmm. these very vulnerable babies from one to another and if they had baggage Mm -hmm. that would really affect the kind of care they were giving to their patients so they needed to be able to deal with one another around easy issues and hard issues while they're feeling emotional and trying to be logical at the same time. And the remarkable thing about this group was they were also unbelievably successful on a business level. Hmm. 
I'm unbelievably successful on a professional level because they could process issues in a functional way and they could process their emotional reactions with each other. So bring me back to the book. You're reading the book about the brain and you're realizing, oh my gosh, I wish I had learned all of this prior. So And part of the book, not as much of the book as I would now like it there to have been, but part of the book was how is the whole brain. Hmm. It's not just the information processing layer at the top of the brain. Mm. It's all the other parts and pieces that work together Mm. that produce not only understanding but motivation Mm -hmm. which doesn't come from information processing. It comes from other structures. So I see. So you were seeing these two groups. That's a great analogy. You were seeing two groups. One that was functioning very logically, which is kind of where you thought before was kind of ideal, right? A lot of us think that great information processors are great in the business, and that's all it takes. But then you saw this other group that was getting more support that obviously was activating different parts of their brain to then be able to work together, and they were more successful. And so it was very clear to me that there was more to the story Mm. than the cerebral cortex. Yeah. And that as I looked at what had happened in my own life, my personal life, uh-huh. um, I realized that, and my professional life as a lawyer, uh-huh. that I realized that I was not addressing huge needs for other people mm-hmm. that other people had mm because it was not on my radar. I thought that I had to play being a woman, that I had to earn my stripes by being more logical and rational. (sighs) Sure, yeah. And that that was really actually not Mm. the best solution, and that some of the most outstanding lawyers were also people who were not responding However logical they were, Mm -hmm. they were responding to the emotional processing of their clients Mm. and of juries. Yeah, I bet. And that, but not necessarily at a conscious and explicit level. Uh Uh, And so I realized that I had been deeply wrong and that in many aspects our entire culture for several millennia have been has been deeply wrong mm. about what social interaction is mm. what emotion is why we have it and how critical it is to everything And in the meantime, I am starting to explore my son's autism and looking around and not finding anything Mm -hmm. particularly supportive for the social-emotional pieces. Mm -hmm. And I finally realized during this process that I needed to leave practicing law Mm 
which mm-hmm. was a very difficult decision because I was I loved my career I had sacrificed a lot for mm-hmm. my career I loved my clients I had wonderful clients um, but I knew that I couldn't be the parent I needed to be and the lawyer that I needed to be in the same body at the same time mm-hmm. so then I had to process that and get through that and I then was hanging out uh, and met another parent in my son's class, a parent of a child with autism, Mm -hmm. who seemed to be much more verbal than my son. Mm -hmm. And I asked him, I asked her what she had done Mm -hmm. to get him there, and she sent me to somebody who had long done ABA Mm -hmm. here in Portland. Uh, And I said, okay, well, if it's working, I'll try it. And Mm -hmm. I went, and by the time I got there, she'd said, we don't do that anymore. She had migrated to uh, relationship development intervention, mm-hmm. and I started doing that with him. Mm-hmm. And through that, I started exploring um, the developmental psychology literature. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I got off the intervention brand reservation and started exploring more broadly within those domains mm. uh, and realized that the neuroscience was not there. Mm. Um, Behind any intervention out there necessarily, you mean, or just in general? Uh, well, that, that are... there was very little understanding of the neuroscience of social-emotional mm-hmm. functioning. Yeah. Um, and and then it became a giant puzzle. Mm-hmm. Why why was that the case? How could we be at the turn of the new millennium, where people had done all this great brain imaging work in the nineties, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I thought that it was had been very balanced. I had no reason to believe right. how unbalanced it was or understand that. Mm-hmm. And I really started to to question this, and the more I read, um, it took me to the history of psychology and the history of neuroscience, mm-hmm. and I started to understand that very explicitly um, in the early 20th century with the turn towards behaviorism, in America, there had been a turn away from the subjective mm-hmm. and from the emotional mm-hmm. and the social, except as could be measured from the outside. Mm-hmm. Now, I understand and appreciate that that was a necessary step. Mm-hmm for those fields to become more scientific. Mm -hmm. However, there was a price. Mm. And the price was the loss of a focus on social-emotional functioning. Mm -hmm. And that directly affected researchers who started publishing in the 90s some of the pioneers of research on Um, the neuroscience of emotion Mm -hmm. 
started publishing books for the lay public and talking about how, what a struggle it had been mm. for them to get tenure and research funding. They couldn't admit what their real interests were because that was incompatible mm-hmm. with the dominant ideology, if you will, mm-hmm. in academic psychology and neuroscience. So that you're speaking to really that push from it being kind of what was considered, I think, fuzzy science, and they're trying to make it more evidence-based and trying to operationalize exactly what they're doing. But I think no. I, I call it physics envy. Everyone had <laughs> physics envy. You know, Einstein had come up with the yeah. theory of relativity, and uh-huh. you know, science was you know the hard sciences were going like gangbusters, and uh-huh. everyone wanted to be like them. Mm. And what people didn't really appreciate is that the complexity of the biological sciences Mm -hmm. dwarfs Mm -hmm. the complexity of many of the physical sciences. Mm. And um, that those were not good analogies. Yeah. So, so I'm going to interrupt you just for a second. So give me a window into your own son during this time. So just so that the listeners can get a good sense of um, who he is a little bit along your journey. Because you talked about going to ABA and right. then going to RDI. And tell us about him. My son, in some ways, is very atypical of a lot of kids with autism. And that is another reason why I didn't respond to a lot of what I was reading about autism. Mm -hmm. My son has always been on a more hypo-sensitive side of things. Mm -hmm. He's not very stressed. He's fairly flexible. Mm -hmm. He has always been um, emotionally responsive, if not emotionally available. Mm He's, he's got um, mild to moderate intellectual disability as a co-occurring condition. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's not a picky eater. Mm-hmm. He's not uh, been aversive. Of, he's, not, he's not been stressed out by his environment. To become, he's been more passive. Mm-hmm. I think one, if it's okay, since I've known him for a long time, I think one of the reasons probably why the kind of discrete trial or behavioral approach didn't really feel right was also because he's a very compliant person. <coughs> and I think he's, and so right. a lot of that is based on compliance first and then being able to follow directions. And I don't think that that, um, I didn't, I didn't know him as young as three, but I've never known him to not be compliant. It's almost like we needed him to kind of come to his own conclusions about things and be able to integrate concepts. Amp that. up his um, seeking and interaction with the environment. Mm-hmm. That it, that's what I thought he needed. Mm-hmm. And um, so he's... He's always been delightful. We've always had a really wonderful closeness. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it was clear to me that he was not socially engaging. Mm-hmm. But uh, you could see the motivation there, I'm hearing. Right. Because if you were really close. And that's kind of confusing, I would think, for during that time when you're reading about social-emotional pieces and getting the diagnosis and hearing that 
um, social emotional is delayed, but what you're seeing is that he's really motivated and you're just trying to figure out how to guide it in the right directions would be my guess. To bring him out. Yeah. To, to develop that, mm. that side. It mm-hmm. wasn't like it wasn't there at all. Right. It was, uh, but see, we had a very close relationship and I understand that's, uh, at the time, people were talking about how children didn't have emotional bonds or reactions. Yeah. And I think many parents always knew that that wasn't true. Mm-hmm. But they were very atypical bonds and right. interactions. Yeah. And um, one thing, just to give you an example, and this is from... This has been going on for quite some time, and I don't think I realized that at the time. Paul has a very good ear, and um, he st- he started having music lessons when he piano lessons when he was five, mm-hmm. um, and he can read the tone of my voice. Mm-hmm. So within half a syllable, he knows exactly what my mood is. Mm-hmm and is responding to that mood. I don't know how early on that was present. Oh, interesting. But I think that that was possibly unimpaired or relatively spared, and that that was one way he understood people. he also his he wasn't uh, gaze avoidant. Uh-huh. He had he didn't have much trouble with eye contact. Mm-hmm. He didn't make a lot of eye contact, but he didn't avoid it. Mm-hmm. Um, he did have a boatload of trouble with joint attention, mm-hmm. but nobody was focusing on joint attention from an interventional perspective. So or okay, from a theoretical perspective. So is that a good time for us to kind of move into the neuroscience behind joint attention and what you've learned, or do you want to go into... I, yeah, I think that may be a little bit... Um, uh, I would need a little more preparation to do that okay. with justice. Okay. But I think I've, I've gone through waves of my own um, development and what became, and my own emotional reactions to that, I mean, I think very early on I became very angry when I started accessing literature that more people weren't paying attention to it. Yeah. And then I realized that the, um, how new it was. And then I started looking for the, knew it was to be from a developmental up. psychology perspective mm-hmm. yeah okay. the study of joint attention and the crucial role that joint attention plays mm-hmm. in social emotional development mm-hmm. and um, even beyond joint attention or before joint attention mutual engagement mm-hmm. because joint attention attention is even a later developing skill mm-hmm. it's the first dyadic mutual engagement which is the foundation of all other 
social, emotional, and cognitive developments. Mm -hmm. um, but then I started hunting for the emotional neuroscience. And the first, one of the very first comprehensive treatments was published only in 1998. That was the year my son was first diagnosed. That book has had a huge impact. And um, the first published books started coming out in the early 2000s. Do you want to name that first book? Because I will have links Yes, from following podcasts. Um, Affective Neuroscience by Yak Punkset. Uh-huh. Uh, he's certainly not the only pioneer. Mm -hmm. um, some of the other pioneers have been Antonio Damasio, mm -hmm. uh, many of whose books I have read. Um, one of whose books, I think, is um, should be mandatory reading for everyone. Hmm. No light reading, though. <laughs> no, that, that <laughs> one's very stuff. accessible. It's yeah. called Self Comes to Mind. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Yak Sepp's book is, I would not recommend that for the general public. <laughs> you have to be extremely dedicated. It's yeah. very uh, neurobiochemical and um, neuroanatomical. Well, I'm hoping we have readers who are interested to that level, though. So. Um, and he has since written a book for a broader public called The Archaeology of Mind, uh -huh. which presents many of the same ideas without as much of, without very much, uh, or any <laughs> neurochemistry mm. uh, and a modest amount of neuroanatomy, mm -hmm. um, which I think is much more accessible. Uh -huh. um, well, thank you for that. Uh, so I think of, uh, and Joseph Ledoux is also another person whose work is focused on a brain structure called the amygdala. Uh, and so it's, it's fairly narrow, but he has a book called The Emotional Brain. It's now fairly dated, but it's, it's a good starter book hmm. for people who are interested in, uh, okay. in that area. Uh-huh. Uh, and now, now it is a burgeoning field, uh, and there's a lot of attention, and a lot of that attention has come because of the rise of autism. Mm. Autism has, in many ways, um, raised the question, brought that question to a sharp point, and people are understanding now, through autism, how important social emotional development is hmm. to all other areas of functioning. Wow, so coming real full circle to what you were talking about earlier in the beginning about just, you know, even in the workplace and how important it is. In all aspects yeah. of life. And I see it in the healthcare system now. Hmm. Because the healthcare system really played itself out with purely mechanical um, and chemical approaches to healthcare. And what's starting to happen in healthcare now is that people are understanding the importance of relationships mm -hmm. and the importance of support, social supports mm -hmm. to patients 
to create and maintain health and even to comply, to understand the medical information that their doctor is telling them uh-huh. and to comply with the treatment regimens that are being used to keep them healthy, to, to keep them healthy. So you are feeling like the healthcare community is addressing the social-emotional aspects of autism? Is that what I'm hearing you no, say? No, I'm saying that the social-emotional issues affect every realm of life. Mm-hmm. And that in healthcare, people, I don't think, are viewing it from exactly the same lens. Mm-hmm. But they're facing the same reality, and they're realizing that the approach, approaches that have been used in the past are inadequate, mm. and that the fix for that is not more information. The fix for that is not more biomedical interventions. Mm. The fix for that is social interaction and social supports Mm. because people are not machines. It's the whole idea that our former governor Kitzhaber um, talked about um, that that sometimes what's going to create health may be a fan or an air conditioner and that may be sufficient to keep someone out of the hospital. Right. But unless you can talk to the person right. and understand what's going on in their life and mm. help them problem solve, that person is going to wind back up in the hospital again. Yeah, I was just hearing a study about that, and I can't remember exactly what it was, but that they are starting to prove how much that can help um, of just having even a simple questionnaire at the beginning of meeting with a client and, and adding that to your initial uh, right. pediatrician visit or physician visit can make a huge difference for the long haul of someone's care. Right. I think it's the five. I can't remember what the name of the instrument is, but it's the five yeah. events yeah. that are really social-emotional events that wind up having a huge impact on subsequent health. And so I'm hearing you're feeling like there's a potential that autism um, being on the rise is helping people pay a little bit more attention to those pieces. Are you feeling, uh, so how is that also, or what is, I guess, more personally, what, what's been your role in trying to figure that out? Well, I've, uh, I've become very active in the autism community, and um, first working at the local, my individual, my son's school, and at the school district level, and um, then starting in about the mid-aughts, working on state-level issues mm-hmm. uh, through a variety of venues. Um, I participated in a group that was examining outcomes research for uh, various autism interventions, and then uh, I also participated in a project launched by the then president of the Oregon Pediatric Society trying to bring together in a collaborative fashion all the autism players from mm-hmm. the different service silos 
and parents and insurance mm -hmm. um, to start to look more broadly at how people can produce better outcomes for for kids with autism, adults with autism, and families. Mm -hmm. And uh, as part of that, I started to chair a work group on issues of identification and assessment. Ultimate, that was a cross-disciplinary group mm -hmm. uh, that included educators, physicians, and parents. Mm -hmm. And it was the first time that many of these late career professionals who were leaders in their field had ever had the opportunity to sit down and talk with people from the other silo. Mm. And it was, it took us about a year wow. to even start our work because people did not have a common vocabulary. Mm -hmm. They had deeply, I would say, skeletal understandings of the other crews system. People in healthcare had no understanding of education and vice versa. Uh, and we literally needed to craft a common vocabulary. Wow. And um, we needed to get enough of a baseline of common understanding before we could make significant progress. That work then was taken up into the Oregon Commission on Autism Spectrum Disorders, and I was one of the original members of that commission as the parent of a child with autism. Mm -hmm. And I became the chair of the commission's uh, subcommittee on screening identification and assessment. And we got new members and started again, and over the years have been working to craft um, a uniform set of guidelines for how to identify uh, autism. And a side project within that, although I have not really been able to get very far with it, uh, is the assessment piece mm -hmm. of that. Um, what I'm hoping to get to is figuring out what the best instruments are for assessing social-emotional development mm -hmm. so that we can see the effect of interventions. Mm -hmm. We have great tools for language. Yeah. We have great tools for cognitive functioning. We have almost no tools for the assessment of the social-emotional developments that are at issue either for typically developing kids mm -hmm. or for kids with autism. We have diagnostic tools. Mm -hmm. The diagnostic tools tell you if this child is um, has made the benchmarks, has met the benchmarks for typically developing children of that age group. Right. But they don't tell you what sub-skills Mm -hmm. that contribute to meeting those benchmarks have or haven't been met or how far along the child is. To then give you that information for what to do. So that you can target your interventions mm -hmm. to the actual real needs of that individual child. So I have to say, the fact that I'm impressed is an understatement 
when you were being told that your son had autism and that you saw that these concerns with um, the tools that were being used and just it just seems like you keep hitting these different scenarios where you're you know these layers of realizing that that information isn't there and you've kept going on that and you're making such uh, amazing change here in Oregon I'm just I'm really appreciative for your work what keeps you still so motivated it must have been frustrating so many times well, <laughs> that a, I'm so impressed a large part of it comes from where I've been if you've studied culture and history over time, if you came to healthcare, when I came to healthcare in the early 1980s and watched the first wave of attempts and participated in the first waves of attempts to improve healthcare mm-hmm. and understood that it may be easy to identify what's wrong but then to change a culture, to change a set of institutional arrangements is not something that happens overnight. Right. It is hugely frustrating. It is almost impossibly frustrating. Mm-hmm. But what keeps me going is the very clear understanding that the kind of change we need, which is broad cultural change and broad institutional change, simply cannot happen without sustained, focused effort. Absolutely. And it, nothing in history has ever changed fast. Yeah. It may look like there are a few moments when things look like they were changing fast and then people slid back to where they were before. And if there is going to be the kind of change that we need, it's going to be founded on a change in the understanding of who we are as human beings Mm -hmm. and how we work. And there is nothing more fascinating or compelling than that. Yeah. It also takes people like you being willing to, you know, stay focused at this and um, continue researching, continuing bringing people to the table to have those discussions. So... And I have been very blessed by the ability to interact with people who have helped to guide me like you and um, can spark my curiosity, suggest things to read, and um, have good conversations. Because that's what we all need to collaborate and progress. And that's the point. true. Yes, absolutely. So I am going to ask you the one last question that I'll be asking on every podcast is if you knew all this knowledge that you have now, but you could go back in time with that knowledge, is there anything that you would do differently in, um, from that moment that you heard that your child may have autism? What would you have done differently, if anything? I think 
I might have understood that I would have understood that he needed intensive social emotional engagement and he had a lot of that just in the family environment mm -hmm. but I would have worked much more intensively on that I might have been hmm. working hmm. Uh, much more quickly than I did it took me four years uh, from his diagnosis to when I quit working. Mm -hmm. I probably would have done it sooner. Uh, and I, that's what I would recommend. Mm. But I think that we all respond to who we are. At that, you know, we are who we are. You can't turn on a dime, just like cultures right. can't. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, and parents can't, families can't. Absolutely. Turn on a dime based on a piece of information. Yeah. Well, and I think the other piece that I really heard from you, too, that I want listeners to be able to think about, too, is you don't have to pick a particular camp, necessarily, um, that there's so much uh, kind of competition between ABA and RDI and floor time and sunrise and all these different approaches out there that you don't necessarily, as a parent, have to pick one. And so I guess something that I think I'm hearing that you would would have done that you are continuing to do is focus on that social-emotional piece, um, also, regardless of approach. And I guess also the other thing that I would uh, want to leave people thinking about is um, one of the most impactful people uh, in our collective life has been my son's piano teacher. Mm -hmm. She was trained uh, at, she got her undergraduate degree in piano performance, mm -hmm. she became an occupational therapist, mm -hmm. and she started teaching kids with autism, and she got, uh, I, I thought, wow, wouldn't it be cool if uh, Paul could learn piano? And so we started going to see her, and what I learned from her was how to be experimental and creative mm. in understanding what his stumbling blocks were. Mm -hmm. Just to fast forward, he now, he didn't then, but he now has perfect pitch. Mm. He can tell what key a piece of music is just from hearing it. Mm -hmm. He's started to compose his own music. Which we are planning on using for the podcast, so probably listeners are already hearing that. Um, Thank you very much for... You're that. welcome. And none of that came easily. He was not a child prodigy mm -hmm. or a savant. Uh, it took a lot of hard work on mm -hmm. her part and my part. Absolutely. And understanding that he could learn if you broke it down into chunks that were small enough for him to master mm -hmm. and didn't put too many chunks in front of him at one time mm -hmm. and that he could learn at his own pace mm -hmm. and that he could get the support he needed in order to learn and his teacher now says two things she says I never thought he would be able to learn how to play let alone to play as well as he does she must have had some belief because he can and I think that's what a lot of therapists bring to the table is you must have been 
um, she motivated. saw progress. Yeah. As long as she saw some progress, uh -huh. she was willing to keep trying. Keep pushing. And um, she was also very creative. And I think that that whole approach mm -hmm. of not believing that any one approach is necessarily going to be the answer or is going to be the answer throughout your child's development okay. yep. uh, or for all aspects of your child's development mm -hmm. that you have to and there's no way to know this in advance right. it's not like there's a place you can go or a person you can consult who will say aha your son is like this therefore do that yep. it is an experimental mm -hmm. process that you have to engage in and see who and what your child responds to. So I guess not just, um, I mean, really trusting that you as a parent know and understand your own child and understanding human development is also extremely important and then learning about autism interventions and putting those together rather than just relying on one particular and saying this is the way it's gonna be. Not, I don't think every parent is going to want to engage in the kind of learning process right. that I did. <laughs> right. And I wouldn't want to say that every, every parent has to do that. Right. But I think every parent should understand that um, if they can, um, should learn a balanced picture of some brain basics. Absolutely. And um, some idea of what social-emotional development is about. Uh-huh. And then get engaged. Mm. See what works. See what... And then it's also very important for parents to have a good relationship and connection to the people who are working with their children. If that's not working... Mm. Um, it's hard to support that as a parent. Mm -hmm. um, so it needs to be an approach that the parent is comfortable with mm -hmm. and an approach that the child is comfortable with. And it's, mm -hmm. it's a fine line to walk mm -hmm. because you're stretching and your child is stretching. Mm -hmm. That whole point is to stretch your child. So you have to push them hard enough to make progress, but not so hard that you're um, not getting as much progress as you could be because they are overwhelmed or unhappy. Absolutely. So I am going to finish on that note with you. Is um, I really love that analogy of making sure that we are not only stretching our children, but also stretching ourselves in our own understanding of what works and what doesn't work. So thank you so much for being here for the podcast. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Synergy really is the collaboration of um, people to uh, create something, and that's been truly the case here. 
Robert Parrish has been the guru behind the editing. Thank you, Robert. Paul Ashworth is the composer and young adult with autism who has taught me so much in my own work. Um, and I feel blessed to have his music on this podcast. And David Gonzalez is my, my significant other who it was his idea to create this podcast based on some of the conversations that he heard me having with people in the field. So thank you, everybody. This wouldn't be happening without each of you. Thank you for listening to the Synergy Autism Podcast. If you would like to learn more about Synergy Autism Center, you may check out our website at www.SynergyAutismCenter.com. Synergy is spelled S-Y-N-E-R-G-Y. And we are updating the podcast there as well, so you can find all the episodes there. Thank you. Thank you.